many in the trade community have been asking customs for a so-called whitelist of suppliers that customs has has reviewed and has signed off on and and customs is really giving very little detailed guidance they're certainly not giving that list of suppliers that we all want that are good guys um, but they're also not telling us exactly what they want except in very general terms Hello and welcome to Newton Investment Management's Double Take Podcast. I'm Rafe Lewis, head of Newton's specialist research teams. And with me, as always, is Jack Encarnacio, one of our crack investigative research analysts. Hey, before we get on with the show today, I just want to ask you folks, if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe, hit like, leave a review, tell your neighbors about us, tell your friends about us, tell your parents about us. Who knows? Maybe they invest money too, money they'll leave to you. Anyway, on today's podcast, we discuss the state of play with various laws out here in the United States and around the world targeting the utilization of forced labor. Joining us to plumb the depths of that topic is David Stepp, who's a veteran trade compliance attorney at Crowell and Mooring, and he works with several multinationals attempting to comply with, most notably, the Wigger Forced Labor Prevention Act here in the United States, which went into effect last June. Jack, take it away. David, thank you so much for joining us. And I wonder if you could sort of set the table at the outset of the discussion. It's been about six months here since the United States began enforcing the law that Rafe mentioned. What's the state of play right now, now that we're a few months in? What are you seeing? Well, thank you, Rafe and Jack. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, the, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, UFLPA, some call it UFLPA and some call UFPA, and there are lots of other names for it as well. Uh, as you mentioned, went into effect of um, middle part of last year in June. And I'll just mention that prior to the UFLPA, there was section 1307 of the Tariff Act that went into effect in 2016 that focuses on the banning of imports of goods made in whole or in part of forced labor coming from anywhere in the world. And then the new UFLPA focuses specifically on China with a different burden of proof. So companies already had a precursor as to what to expect for the UFLPA. But I don't think that they quite understood the, the significance and, and how deep customs would be going into the supply chains. So it started out pretty slowly. We didn't see, at least I didn't see with our clients, uh, a lot of detentions until probably August, maybe late July, early August. And the detentions um, have been increasing um, sporadically through the end of 2022. But I have to say, beginning in 2023, we're seeing um, significant uh, numbers of detentions for our clients. So and just to be clear, David, when you say detentions, you mean? Detention. So if, if customs determines, uh, has a reasonable suspicion that goods coming in from a certain supplier in China or elsewhere around the world was made uh, with Uyghur forced labor or coming from the Xinjiang region, customs has the ability to detain those goods. And once that detention uh, notice is received by an importer, they then have 30 days to file a submission approving that the goods either did not have a connection with Xinjiang or with Uyghur labor or certain named entities. Uh, and if they did, then those companies have to prove with clear and convincing evidence that the goods were not made with forced labor. Do you know of any importers, any of your clients or someone else's clients who has uh, uh, adequately rebutted that presumption of utilizing forced labor? We haven't seen that. And actually, just recently, uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, has stated that no other importer, at least um, 
to that to the date of that uh, discussion had been able to overcome that presumption. So, but uh, but let me stress here: it's a two-pronged test, and 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 most of and most companies are f focusing on that first prong, and that first prong is to show that there's no connection with the Xinjiang region. So, through mapping of your supply chain, the companies are trying to determine or are trying to demonstrate that they did not source materials or labor from the Xinjiang region. So if you can if you can prove that, then you're outside of the scope of the uh, of the UFLPA, and then you don't get to that second prong, which is practically impossible to comply with the clear and convincing evidence standard that there was no forced labor. My goodness. Okay, so that means there are uh, you know veritable mountains of goods sitting in our ports right now, presumably in California. I read an Axios story that said something about you know, just over a billion dollars worth of solar materials alone that have been kind of impounded at this point. What what happens with this stuff? Is it now being shipped back to China? Is it just sitting there in perpetuity like the dead letter office or the postal office? Well, <clears throat> Customs is, is pr provides importers uh, a couple of op options. Obviously, one that I've already discussed is the submission of a detention, uh, of a submission um, countering um, Customs allegations. Um, the importer also has the option of, ex uh, of exporting the goods from the US, um, which many companies have done if they don't feel like they can get the necessary paperwork to prove um, or to rebut that presumption. Um, I'll note that those goods can't be exported to, the, to Canada or Mexico because they're USMCA um, members with the US. They have to go exported, usually back to the country of origin, but it could go to another market, um, or they can be destroyed. And what we've seen, I, I've had one instance where goods have been detained for, for many, many months. Uh, customs ultimately excluded the goods from entry into the US um, and uh, the goods are being, um, you know, th there's the search for uh, uh, service providers to destroy the goods. Um, so I'll, I'll mention also that uh, at the port facilities, the warehouses are very full. They have to stay in bonded warehouses if, unless there's some sort of, um, um, agreement struck with customs, which is very difficult to do. But uh, there, there are a lot of storage charges being um, accrued as, as we speak with all of these goods being detained. It's amazing, David. I mean, what did these folks expect? I wonder, you know, they, they knew that they were importing from the controlled region, the region that the, the law seeks to address. Did they expect that, I don't know, once it arrived on our shores here in the United States, that uh, somehow they'd be able to not have their goods detained? Is this a shock to folks? Well, you know, it was very level of compliance and due diligence. You know, uh, large multinationals have had sustainability groups for several years now digging into the supply chains for forced labor uh, indicators. Um, but most companies, you know, would receive um, certifications or affidavits from their suppliers stating that there was no forced labor in the supply chain. But again, as um, from a customs perspective, those sorts of declarations are, you know, hold little sway. Um, when, you know, when, when, when it comes down to it, uh, determining whether the goods should be admitted into the U.S. or not. So, um, so there was a lot of surprise there. Um, no one, uh, well, a lot of companies never thought that customs would go down to the granular level um, because not only, like you, I think you mentioned the, um, the solar industry, um, customs, uh, customs guidance documents say that you have to go back to the port site mines uh, in China or elsewhere, as to um, where the where the quartzite was actually mined, used to produce um, the the polysilicon in the solar product, so it's very granular um, and incredibly invasive. Um, I'll also mention that you know the UFOPA doesn't cover 
are in, um, not only covers goods coming directly into the U.S. from China, but coming from third countries. I see, uh, I've seen several instances where goods were manufactured in Vietnam, you know, thinking, and many importers thinking, well, if it's coming from Vietnam, it's outside the scope of the UFLPA, but they used um, uh, Chinese inputs. And I've seen a number of seizures um, and detentions because of those third party suppliers uh, um, supplying the inputs to the non-Chinese producers. So it's not evident um, immediately that the goods would be subject because they're coming from outside of China. So David, we're a thematic oriented investment shop here, and, and we've had a theme that we've been leaning into for a while uh, around reshoring that all of these kind of regulatory and legislative barriers will, and tax incentives will, will lead many multinationals to repatriate a lot of their operations and, and do away with these headaches. But I am curious if your clients are looking for, I don't want to say subterfuge, but kind of end runs or, you know, clever ways of getting around this to avoid having to completely upend their supply chains in the short term? Well, I, I'm seeing a lot of clients and just companies in general going to Vietnam for final, um, for final production. Um, <clears throat> now, of course, they're often using those Chinese inputs, which the necessary due diligence has to be performed to ensure that they have no connection to Xinjiang. But if they're coming out of Vietnam, there's um, you know there's at least visibility into the supply chain. The challenge for many companies is the lack of visibility into the China, you know Chinese production and the sub-tier suppliers. We're also seeing clients go to Mexico. Um, obviously, transportation uh, cost and time uh, to shipments for shipments coming to the U.S. is much shorter. In a lot of industries, you don't quite have the expertise uh, or the quality in Mexico. But I know uh, of a number of companies that are trying to develop that as we speak. Can you set a bit of context for our listeners, David, in terms of the Xinjiang region? You mentioned the solar industry. It's also a popular location for uh, textile exports as well. Uh, why this region? You know, why is it in the crosshairs of so much attention and legislative and regulatory attention? And, and what have you learned about sort of the nature of, of operations out there as you seek to advise clients on this stuff? So um, the, the focus on the Xinjiang region is because of the, the, the ethnic um, minority, the Uyghurs, um, who live in Xinjiang. And um, there have been reports, uh, uh, identify, uh, reports by NGOs and by the U.S. government about um, the treatment of uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang and the, um, the, the labor conditions being, you know, uh, often involving allegedly forced labor. So th there's, you know, there's a, a, an international effort, not only the U.S., but uh, Europeans and others around the world to try to put a stop to the, the, the treatment, uh, mistreatment of the Uyghurs. So these are the government's efforts to try to um, force change with respect to their treatment. David, you know, as far as I know, this is the only instance, I'm no lawyer, by the way, but I mean, it's the only instance I know of where there's just kind of a universal rebuttable presumption of guilt, for lack of a better word, that you're using forced labor if you're sourcing in whole or in part from a region. And, you know, when I look at UN documents that talk about, you know, there's 27 million people, you know, in forced labor situations around the world, you know, China is a hot spot, but there are many other countries, including the Americas and Europe, where there's forced labor. 
So I'm wondering, you, you know, you're a lawyer, you're at a reputable firm. Why is industry not mounting a legal challenge to the U.S. government about this policy, given it's, I don't know, pretty harsh and and so focused uh, attention on a single region or country? Well, you know, obviously with the geopolitical situation with China these days, uh, I guess it's understandable why the, there is this uh, this laser focus on China or understandable why it's manifested itself in this way. But as you mentioned, there are other examples of, of forced labor around the world. And, and, and the other statute, the uh, 19 U.S.C. 1307, not to get too technical here, Section 307, uh, that went into effect in, in 2016, focuses on forced labor uh, situations elsewhere around the world. And actively, I know in Congo, um, precious metals that go into batteries, I believe the, the um, cobalt and um, uh, lithium and other things, you know, mined ores, there's a huge focus on that and um, by the U.S. government. I know in Malaysia with uh, rubber gloves and palm oil, uh, various other instances of, of these w withhold release orders or WRO import bans into the U.S. So, it, so China isn't alone, um, but certainly the focus is on there. I, I do expect some um, uh, litigation, some challenges to the U.S. government's burdens of proof um, that have at least been orally expressed by uh, U.S. Customs under the UFLPA um, based on uh, conversations that we've had with, with uh, the agency and with importers, I believe there, um, there could very well be some challenges in, in the short term. Yeah, yeah, one would think, particularly considering the situation with the logjam of you know seized materials um, just sitting there, perhaps having to be destroyed and the economic right. consequence of that. So, so I wonder, um, as we've established, we have yet to sort of get a precedent of what a successful rebuttal of the presumption that if you mm -hmm. import from Xinjiang, what that looks like. Um, but can you take our listeners through sort of the, the, the contours of the kinds of things an importer has to be able to prove? It sounds very difficult without eyes and ears on the shop floor, so to speak, or right there in the mine, for instance, uh, to be able to demonstrate this to the satisfaction of the law. What what do you think is actually being asked of companies here to remove this this sort of veil? Sure, and, and Customs has issued these guidance documents, uh, both Customs and, and Department of Homeland Security. And, and again, I'll mention that this this UFLPA has two prongs. The first prong is to show that there's no connection with with the Xinjiang region. And by this point, most companies have you know if they were sourcing cotton from Xinjiang or uh, uh, or, or sourcing oil or silica from from Xinjiang they've moved out of the Xinjiang region. So, but, but nonetheless, there's, you still have to prove that there's no connection with Xinjiang with all of the inputs. So that's one piece of it. And if you aren't successful there, then you have to show that there was no forced labor. On that first prong, which is where the vast majority of, company, of companies are spending their efforts, they're having to, you know, going back to their first tier supplier in China, and, um, and in fact, I've um, been working on, on several projects uh, on this today. You go back to your first tier supplier, hopefully they have an ERP system where they can track where all the materials came from by lot number for their sub-tier uh, material suppliers. And you have to peel back the layers of the onion to get back to the tier three, tier four uh, levels of the suppliers back to the raw materials. As you can imagine, if you uh, the, the the U.S. importer has little, if any, 
uh, usually no connection to those sub-tier suppliers. So you rely on your, um, your tier one supplier to help uh, make introductions. Incredibly, incredibly difficult because you've got to provide com the commercial documents, the importer, the, the commercial invoices and the purchase orders for each step back to the raw materials, the transportation documents showing the movement from, you know, from a raw material that originated from outside the Xinjiang region all the way through the production process for the raw materials and the subcomponents to the final assembler of the finished good. As that onion layer is being peeled back and back and back, what are uh, customs looking for in terms of, oh, there's a supplier that's on a list that we have deemed to be guilty of forced labor? I guess, where's that next step of, you know, okay, this is your full supply chain. How do we identify bad actors on that list? And can I can I piggyback on that question? Because is there a process with Customs and Border Protection where a supplier can be on the good list instead of the naughty <laughs> list, where they can get certified as not using slave labor and forced labor so that you can start to source from them, even if they're in a problematic region like Xinjiang? Well, Rafe, you're, you're, you've been listening in on some conversations we've been having because many in the, many in the trade community have been asking Customs for a so-called white list of suppliers that Customs has, has reviewed and has signed off on. And, and Customs is really giving very little detailed guidance. They're certainly not giving that list of suppliers that we all want that are good guys, um, but they're also not telling us exactly what they want, except in very general terms. For example, in the apparel industry, you have to go, they, they do say you have to go back to the cotton bales. Um, if you can trace from the finished garment back to the cotton bales um, with lot numbers, um, and transportation documents through the spinning and the weaving and the um, dyeing and the cutting and the assembly process, you have to go through each stage of that production, then you're going to satisfy what they're, you know, you're going to satisfy customs. But that's, as you can imagine, that's, um, that, that's quite onerous. Um, so, and let me, I also want to mention something um, that is another impediment here for U.S. and, and non-Chinese companies. Um, in 2021, because of the, the issuance of laws that the Chinese government saw were discriminatory, restrictive uh, to Chinese companies uh, uh, implemented by the US and Europe and other countries, the Chinese government now makes it illegal for Chinese companies to comply with these onerous US and foreign laws, such as the UFOPA. So a, a US, company, an importer cannot go to their Chinese supplier and utter the word Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act or any other U.S. like export control law or sanctions law without violating that Chinese law. And that gives the Chinese uh, uh, manufacturer a private right of action against that U.S. company. It makes it incredibly difficult for communicating with those suppliers and doing this due diligence. Wow, that sounds like a catch-22 uh, and maybe something much worse, a uh, vicious cycle. You know, speaking of catch-22s, I mean, if I may editorialize for a second and then ask a question, I find it really fascinating that on the one hand, you have the United States government that is desperate to effectuate an energy transition. And yet when you look at you know, solar goods, when you look at cobalt coming from sub-Saharan Africa, these are critical elements to that energy transition. And yet you have this other side of the government that's worried about more social and human capital issues that is, you know, putting a blockade up there, which is really fascinating. 
And that leads me to my question about the European Union. They proposed uh, a forced labor law, uh, I believe, back in the fall of 2022. Wondering where that stands and if it will be similarly built like the UFLPA and kind of that, you know, that presumption of guilt piece. And how do you expect that to play out? Yeah, so working with my colleagues in Europe, um, <clears throat> we are, are tracking that. And and certainly it's expected in 2023 that the EU will pass its um, final regulations with respect to forced labor. Up until now, there really hasn't been a law in Europe with the teeth of the US laws, either Section 1307 or the UFLPA. But based on uh, current drafts of what's being circulated at the EU level, that there are gonna be import bans, probably some different um, burdens um, but generally coming more into line with the U.S. type of law. Um, I'll mention that the U.K. Um, passed the uh, Modern Slavery Act in 2015, which requires multinationals with a certain turnover <clears throat> to make statements, public statements on their website about their efforts with respect to um, rooting out forced labor and uh, modern slavery, slavery within, its supply, within their supply chains. Um, but, there, but if you don't do that, the only... Um, uh, there's no import ban. It's just a fine for failing to disclose what you've done. It doesn't get, tell you what you have to do, but you have to make disclosures based according to certain guidelines that the government has issued. So really no teeth to that at all. So both the, U, uh, the EU is ahead of the UK right now, but we do expect in 2023 for there to be much more onerous laws um, uh, implemented there that will be in line with the US laws. Many, many moving pieces, and we're trying to stay on top of it for you here at Double Take. Great thanks to uh, David Stepp of Kroll and Mooring for joining us. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Jack and Rafe. Investment Management North America, LLC, NIMNA, or the firm, is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, BNY Mellon. The firm was established in 2021, comprised of equity and multi-asset teams from an affiliate, Mellon Investments Corporation. The firm is part of the group of affiliated companies that individually or collectively provide investment advisory services under the brand Newton or Newton Investment Management Newton. Newton currently includes NIMNA and Newton Investment Management Limited, Newton Limited. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of NIMNA, which are subject to change and which NIMNA does not undertake to update. This publication or any portion thereof may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This document may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstance in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this publication is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein have been, has been obtained by, from third-party sources that are believe, believed to be reliable, but the information has not been independently verified by NIMNA. NIMNA makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. ESG analysis refers to a range of internal and external qualitative and quantitative research. Newton manages a variety of strategies. 
Whether and how ESG considerations are assessed or integrated into Newton's strategies depends on, on the asset classes and or the particular strategy involved, as well as the research and investment approach of each Newton firm. ESG may not be considered for each individual investment, and where ESG is considered, other attributes of an investment may outweigh ESG considerations when making investment decisions. Analysis of themes may vary de- depending on the type of security, investment rationale, and investment strategy. Newton will make investment decisions that are not based on themes and may conclude that other attributes of an investment outweigh the thematic structure the security has been assigned to. If distributed in the UK, EMEA, Australia, New Zealand, this podcast is issued by Newton Limited and may be deemed a financial promotion. Newton Limited is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E20IJN, in the conduct of investment business. Registered in England, number 01371973. NIM is also registered as an investment advisor with the Security and Exchange Commission, SEC, to offer investment advisory services in the United States. If distributed in Canada, this podcast is issued by either Newton Limited, which is availing itself of the International Advisor Exemption, IAE, in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. The IAE is in compliance with the National Instrument 31-103 Registration Requirements, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations, or NIMNA, which is availing itself of the IAE in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, and Manitoba. The IAE is in compliance with the National Instrument 31-103, Registration Requirements, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations.